In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hello, and welcome to Good One, a podcast about jokes. I'm your host, Jesse David Fox. Each episode of Guests comes on to play a clip of one of their jokes and then discuss how they wrote it and how it represents what they're trying to do with their comedy. This week, Mark Marin returns to the show. I last interviewed Mark for the podcast on March 13th, 2020. Uh, I remember the exact date because it was the day uh, Donald Trump declared a state of emergency concerning COVID-19. Two months later, Mark's girlfriend and collaborator, the director Lynn Shelton, died unexpectedly of undiagnosed leukemia. I, I say that because you, you should be warned that is the focus of this conversation. Um, this is a somewhat intense conversation at times, but at other times it is some of the most fun I've ever had doing this show. So what you're about to hear is how Mark took the first steps to try to take all he was feeling and experiencing about grief and mourning and turn it into something that was funny, if you can believe it. The result is about a 20-minute section in the middle of his new special, From Bleak to Dark, which premieres on HBO on February 11th. We're going to start with the opening few minutes from that chunk, in which Mark discusses the very prospect of trying to do material about what happened. So, here is Mark Maron. But the point I was trying to make is that the mortality thing, the, the idea of uh, impending death, it, which is you know, pretty, pretty much going to happen to everyone... It's, it's, it's right there. And I know a lot of you know me and you know my life because you listen to me all the time and you know that during COVID, my partner, my girlfriend, Lynn Shelton, the director, the genius, uh, passed away. She didn't get COVID. Thank you. I, I'm, I'm assuming that's a, a plot of recognition. Um, <laughs> thank God she's gone. Jesus. So, shh, take it easy. It'll be okay. I can get right back into the sad tone. But she did. She passed away, and it was the, the most horrible thing that's ever happened to me, and I'm sure to her. And, um, <laughs> it was right there. But let's, let, let me get serious. It, it, you know, she, she did die, and it was, and it was a terrible tragedy. And, the, the truth is, like, I'm a guy who talks about his wife. So I, I, I wasn't clear how that was going to go. How am I going to talk about that? You know, is that ever going to happen? Is there a way to, 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 to make, bring humor to that? Because, you know, I'm not really the kind of guy that's like, she's dead, what are the bits? Let's get going, you know? But, but there was also moments where I'm like, well, maybe I can't do it. Maybe I have to do something more serious. Maybe I have to do maybe a, a Jewish-themed one-man show, you know? Maybe like Mark Maron's Kaddish, A Prayer for the Dead. You know, sort of a black box theater, you know, before the show, there's like Israeli music playing, you know. Dona, 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 dona. Then the lights come up and I just lean into it. Yiskada, the yiskada, 
people would walk out of that show going, definitely wasn't funny, wasn't funny at all. And I like him, he's funny, but this was very sad, but I'm, I'm glad he did it. He seemed to like really work through some stuff, but not one laugh, not one laugh. I'm not, and I'm not Jewish, so I missed half the references. But then I thought, well, maybe, how about a TED Talk? People do TED Talks, I could do a TED Talk. How hard is a fucking TED Talk? I just have to get one of those weird, you know, earphone microphones, you know, change my posture a little bit. You know, like, everyone dies. I'm gonna die, you're gonna die, we all die. I'm Mark Marin. I'm a comedian. But then ultimately what happens is I realize, well, you're just going to talk about it. You know, somehow or another you figure it out, you're going to talk about it. And if, you know, you need to talk about it in a funny way, it'll happen at some point if it's necessary, which it always is. But like, I, I realize, you know, in thinking about it, that, you know, no one really talks about grief. No one talks about PTSD. No one knows how to process this stuff. Everybody has it. It's just, you know, locked into us. And it's, there's not a conversation. There's not really a cultural conversation around it. And it's difficult. You know, when she died, the only things that really kind of stuck in my head was that, you know, I'm not the victim. You know, she is, and it's horrible. And, you know, this is not unusual. People die in people's lives. Tragedy happens. You hope it doesn't happen to you, but it happens to probably most people. And then the Jewish thing, you know, may her memory be a blessing. These sort of, you know, kept me going. And it was a difficult time to grieve because it was COVID. So, you know, no one could really come by. People reached out, but there was not a lot of, you know, human contact. And I got, I'd be honest with you, uh, I got very tired of uh, crying in front of strangers, my neighbors, because I didn't know them, and it was in the paper, and, and this is how I met my neighbors. You know, and, and grief is a fucked up thing. You know, I remember like a, a week after she died, I was just taking my garbage out, and from across the street, I hear, hey, Mark, I'm Troy, I live across the street, how you doing, man? I'm like, not good, dude, it's not good. He's like, yeah, I bet, buddy, I bet. It's fucking terrible. I bet, man. Well, I'm just across the street. I know, man. I see you. You're right there. <laughs> and he just stood there until I stopped crying. And I was like, thanks, man. I feel better, buddy. I feel better. Nice meeting you, dude. It was that moment where I realized, like, he doesn't... I'm here with Mark Marin. Thank you for joining me. You're welcome. Uh, pleasure to be here. Um. So... You know, before we talk about your process, both in terms of writing the special and processing of what happened, I want to talk a little bit about um, Lynn and her as an artist. Um, and I was thinking about she directed your last two specials, End Times Fun and Too Real. Um, she also worked with you on Sword of Trust. And I just want to know, what was it like to be directed by Lynn Shelton? Well, Lynn and I and I were, were friends a long time before we were a couple and she always had a tremendous amount of faith in me as an actor which I did not so it was basically on her kind of belief in my abilities to do something other than you know just be me or just or, or to get deeper into acting mm. that you know kind of compelled her like she always she did a, a direct a couple of episodes of Marin as well but we kind of, I, I was kind of standoffish with her for a while, but ultimately, you know, she has a vision and it's it's a fairly empathetic vision usually. And she really is about getting something authentic on, on mm -hmm. camera. And she was a very kind of open person and very giving person and very um, kind of a, a good cheerleader, that's for sure, for, for, yeah. 
for getting it right. But I mean, it was it, it was very uh, she was very involved w- when she directed, you know, and and, and it's any actor's choice to listen to a director or, or for a director <laughs> to be hands on or not. But I mean, she you felt like you were definitely collaborating with Lynn or yeah. I did anyways. Um, so, you know, two months into the pandemic, sh- she passes. Um, you know, the next day you do what you always do with WTF, which is you re-release the interview with a person with an intro where you express your feelings. And, you know, obviously this was a special circumstance, but I was sort of curious about how that felt because, you know, on one hand, it, it must be, you know, in these moments, it must, must be nice to like, oh, I know what I can do. I know what I'm supposed to do next, which I think there's something paralyzing often when someone passes. But on the other hand, you know, this is a private thing you're having and, you know, there are certain expectations because of the public nature of your work and your relationship. So, you know, how did it feel in that moment? How do you think about that that episode that you put out? I don't know. I haven't listened to it again. And it was I was in complete kind of shock and and severely traumatized. The, uh, whatever the beginning of that would be, I, I, I think it was just natural. I don't know if we need to yeah. call it PTSD. I mean, it was just, I was shattered and beside myself. Yeah. And it was really a conversation with myself and with my producer, my, Brendan, who had been riding it out with me. Uh, you know, I was on the phone with people uh, when she was in the hospital for that short period yeah. of time. And, you know, he's like, look, we don't have to... Uh, do do it and we don't have to ever do anything you i mean you, yeah. you know it's just really up to you uh how you want to handle it if you want to handle it you know or if you just want to take a month off or a year off whatever yeah and i just thought for some reason that i maybe selfishly but but maybe not that to sort of stay in the groove with this thing and be honest with my emotions even though they were completely out of control and uh and and um shattered to to be public with them yeah uh it, you know i wasn't looking for uh recognition or or even love or anything else i just i thought in that moment that maybe in this emotional state my reaction would be helpful to somebody else i yeah. i actually thought that like you know grief is a, a strange thing and tragedy and, and all this stuff, but you don't, you hear about it happening all the time, but you know, all of a sudden you're, you're in it. I was in it. Yeah. And I don't know that I've ever heard somebody, you know, try to reflect in, in, or, or even try to keep it together in, in that moment yeah, of, of loss, which was the day after. Yeah. I mean, it, it, I think that, and you know, I went back and I listened to the the beginning of the next few months of episodes and it is really, compelling to see a person not necessarily work through it completely, but just sort of evolve in that. And I think it does help normalize these things that are not often just sort of not televised or recorded as exactly as they are. And the, I agree. And, and and that was why I stayed in the groove with it, because this is one of this is an inevitability yeah. about life. Uh, not just like it, it, it's not even in the abstract, but I mean, it's in the abstract, you know, when you're younger, when you it is, I think, in the abstract for most people, the idea yeah. that we die. We know it intellectually. I mean, you can talk about it all day long. Everyone's going to die. Everyone's going to die. But, you know, you don't want to and you don't think about it. And, you, you know, it's not part of, uh, you know, your daily thought generally. Mm-hmm. And if it is, it's it's usually not in a great way. 
Uh, but there's an awareness of it. So when it happens in your house, because the other side of, you know, we're all going to die is that people die around you. Yeah. You lose people. And um, I just, I'd never heard, but I never sought out mm-hmm. the the conversation around it or, or, or listened to anybody go through it. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm sure it's out there, but, you, you know, but here I was going through it and I was going to do what I do, which is, uh, experience it uh, uh, in the moment publicly. Yeah. Though it's obviously an abstract, you know, you are a person, I think, as a fan of yours, that is aware of death, who thinks about it, who has a tendency to sort of more catastrophic thinking. You know, how are you in those moments? You know, I, I remember in one of the episodes you talk about really working hard not to be bitter or angry when you're you're in those spaces. You know, and I talk about that in the special a little bit, is that, you know, I... You know, I, I was not the victim. Yeah. And what is happening is part of life. And, and I, it's not my, I, I'm not a really, a, I don't go to self-pity. You know, I'm yeah. not really that person. Uh, I get angry. I mean, I think you, and I, I was justifiably angry, but even anger at tragedy, yeah. there's no answer to the question why. You know, unless someone gets hit by a truck, or or an accident happens yeah. and there there's some answer to why uh there's no there there's almost no point to it because you know you if you want to get mystical or spiritual or 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 think about like you know well god did this what was god's reason you know what you know what does this mean it, it doesn't mean anything other than you, you know sometimes tragedy strikes you or the people you love and i, I yeah. would say that's probably more than a 50-50 proposition yeah. yeah. You know, in terms of it. So, so what, to answer your question, I just, you know, I, it was not my place to feel sorry for myself or, or to even be bitter, yeah. but it was to experience the loss and, and integrate that because mm-hmm. that is what people do. Everyone I think is in some degree of grief. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you've talked about how many people reached out, especially in those, those early weeks. Um, what did you learn from, and you talk a little bit about the special, but from those first weeks and months, what did you learn about how people deal with that, how they deal with grief? I think people generally, you know, show up with, and, and that's all that's required of them. Like, I think that most people, and, and myself, it took me a while to do this, that, that and I talk about it in the special a bit, is that yeah. you don't need to do much. I mean, if you just show up with some food, you know, it's it really goes a, a long way, and uh, yeah, I mean, you know, even that the thing I talk about in the special about my neighbor, it's just you don't realize, you know, how much. I don't know if you need people, but you know, I'm a pretty self, I'm a self-contained person in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. and I and I kind of, you know, I kind of uh, muddle through life in a fairly solitary fashion, you know, just by nature of what I do and who I am. But I, I do, you know, I, I talk to people all the time, but but just to be, have a a, 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 a witness and somebody to, to check on you and to bring food and to, it, it really made a difference. I yeah. can't, you know, because it was, we were in isolation at the time and, you know, people, they would come over and they'd stand in the yard and, you know, or, you know, or Allison or some people would, would hug me and stuff. And my brother came out for a couple of weeks and just yeah. when we had to bear down and, and do the stuff that needed to be done. But 
But I don't know. I think it really is a powerful thing when people show up. And a lot of times you're showing up for, for everybody else. There was a, a sort of Shiva situation uh, starting the day after she mm-hmm. passed on, online that Michaela Watkins put together. And I had to be careful. You know, I had to uh, learn a lesson about my public grieving around her because, you know, my relationship with her was fairly new. And, you know, I was like when she died, I mean, I hadn't really even spent time with her family. Like, yeah. like if I hadn't asked her for the code on her phone before they took her out into the ambulance, I don't know what would have happened. Yeah. Because she was unconscious almost all day when they were trying to save her life. And and I, and I had to say to the, to the intensive care nurse, you know, I, I need you to open her phone and find me some Shelton's because mm. I don't know them. Yeah. And I had, had a call her dad and yeah and get people in the loop because like she put me down as the emergency contact in the hospital because she didn't think she was going to die but i didn't think it was my place to be the guy to to be like either her ex-husband who was barely an ex or her father or other family like somebody had to be in the loop who who knew her so who, or who had a history with her who was you know her family mm-hmm. so that was awkward and and horrifying but but the truth is, is that like her cousin, who I didn't know, like, you know, they wrote an, a piece in the New York Times about her and they put a picture of us and they talked to me and her cousin said, look, you know, there's other people grieving and, you, you know, you should go easy on the, you know, the public face of this. And, and I, like I, 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 I reacted initially and in, in slightly offended, but I realized she was right. So I, I just stopped doing, mm-hmm. you know, interviews and stuff about it because it wasn't just my sadness and you know she had a family she had a lot of people that that don't have a voice you know and 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 I wasn't trying to make it about me I was just being approached but it was true you know out of respect uh you know I stopped really talking about it publicly other than my podcast this was still in the early days of COVID so you couldn't go on stage even if you wanted to and you have talked about there's time in that period where you're thinking maybe you would, maybe you're done with comedy at all. Maybe I think you once said, maybe I'm cured. I don't have to do this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what maybe were you I thinking? I feel better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe what I'm was... all better. <laughs> <laughs> what was the process uh, like to finally be like, I, I want to go on stage. I want to talk about this on stage. Well, uh, despite whatever I say and, you know, whether Lynn died or not, I mean, I always say that I might be done, but no. But I started doing Instagram lives compulsively on a daily basis. And, I, you know, and there was a lot of people watching them. And it was me just kind of mumbling around and doing stuff around my house and ranting and raving about this or that experience and grief. And, you know, people were watching it. And a lot of people got a lot out of it. I got a lot of peculiar fans f- from that. But but it did engage me with an audience on a daily basis mm-hmm. to the point where CNN offered uh, on their defunct streaming service, <laughs> you know, offered me a lot of money to do it on there. And I'm mm-hmm. like, I can't, I'm not going to do that. Thank God I didn't. Um, so I was, I knew that I needed to engage in, in engage my voice that was performative. And that's yeah. how I did it. And, you know, despite all this talk about, you know, comedy, I, I didn't do any outdoor shows. I didn't do any Zoom shows. I'm like, that's really not comedy. And that's not how I do comedy. So, you know, if comedy's over, it's over. If it's not, we'll see. But as soon as people... Went back to clubs. I went back to clubs. Yeah. <laughs> Within a week. Because, <laughs> like, it was easy to say, dude. It was easy to be like, like you know, like, I might be done. You know, I don't need to do it anymore. Because no one else was doing it. Yeah, So, yeah, like, yeah. there was no real, it was like, we're all done. 
But as soon as other people started doing it in clubs, I'm like, I, the race is on. Here yeah. we go. Literally every comedian, I feel like, went through a similar struggle where they're all like, yeah, I think I actually don't need to do it anymore. And then it's like hmm. five months pass. And they're like, you know, um, it's interesting because the last time you and I spoke, it was for a story I was doing about the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Um, and I, and it I kept on thinking about this while I was preparing because, you know, you would say to me, like, there was no such thing as too soon for that. You know, where you were in Astoria, Queens, people you were seeing in your building who had relationships to people who died there or who were working there. And as that person with that proclivity who's like, there is no such too soon, you have to start doing the work of processing. Did it feel similarly about that with talking about Lynn? You know, did you feel like I need to talk about this right away? That's... Well, I certainly did it on the podcast, so th- I, that was already done. You know, I, I imagine too soon is relative to um, respecting others around it who are affected, yeah. and and what are you putting out there? You know, like I mean, yeah, I'm not sure I was right about that. That there's no too soon because yeah. there's you know there's the component of your capacity to show up for it, and what are you mm-hmm. showing up for? And and, and who is it supposed to be for? Like, I mean, I remember processing my second divorce in a one man show that it was not ready to be seen and it was raw and it was, it was terrible. And, you know, it was just brutal. I mean, some people, some people like that shit. You know what I mean? I mean, I did a whole CD that, that final engagement CD is like, you know, I was a mess, but like, you know, Louis Katz, a comic, he's like, man, that, that one helped me. You know, that one was the best one. I was going, (laughs) I was going through a break. I, that was just, you know, I listened to it a lot during that. I'm like, thank God, he might be the only one. But, but it wasn't so much too soon. I did, I wasn't thinking in terms of when when I got on stage to do comedy about, you know, is it time to start doing this material? I didn't know what it was. Yeah. You, you know, and, and I talked about the process of that. You know, about and the nature of too soon. I think I address in the special a bit in that. You know, if you're a funny person or you need comedy to process, comedy is going to make you feel better. And, you know, it can make you feel better if even if you're addressing it specifically, even if it is in poor taste or gallows humor or whatever you want to call it. It's going to save your life in a way, mentally, certainly, emotionally, possibly. But as I said in the special, you know, I didn't I didn't know how it would happen or whether it could happen or, or, or whether there was a way for me to process it you know, tastefully, uh, uh, in comedy, you know, and, and I, and, and I would say that in the special, I, I take it right to the edge. I take it right to the edge of, of the, of good taste, mm-hmm. but, but, uh, you know, I, I own it and, yeah. you know, this is what I needed to do. Like there's a line in there that I only said once, you know, that night. And I don't even know why, but you know, in looking at it, it, it might seem callous, but it is so perfect in 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 terms of what we're heading into. But that line where it was like, it was the worst day of my, my life, and I'm sure for her too. You know, like, yeah. it's it's so right there, and it's so hilarious, but it's brutal, man. And But I think in <laughs> retrospect, it kind of gives the audience permission yeah. as we enter that part of the special. Yeah. Which I, it wasn't there before. It, what was there before was just me going like, all right, so you guys know that she died. Hmm. And then we're in this place. And then all of a sudden that night, that thing happens. And I'm like, okay, so that we're, we're already in, right? You know? Yeah. That's, and it, I think part of why that joke works is it's, it is one of the jokiest jokes 
yeah. I could think of in your entire career. It's like yeah. an old school misdirect yeah. joke. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I mean, when I watch it, I'm like, that's the spirit of comedy in me. Like, it, it's happened before. Yeah. Like, if you watch my first Letterman, I don't know who that guy was, but he had been on TV a million times. <laughs> and it yeah. wasn't me. It wasn't me. folks? Good. If you're not from New York, welcome to New York. I live here in Manhattan, and I like it all right. The only problem is where I live downtown, people steal everything in my neighborhood. They steal things, you know, out of your, out of your car, out of your apartment, off your body. Then they turn around and sell it right on the street. This actually happened to me in my neighborhood. I'm walking down my street. Guy comes up beside me. He's running. He's like, hey, want to buy this walk, man? Seven bucks. There was a guy behind him going, hey, what the hell's going on here? <laughs> so I said, how much without the listener would that be? Mm-hmm. When you finally were in front of audiences for the first time, and, you know, what what were they like? What were the audiences feeling like, you know, were you, was the first time in front of audiences, you're like, well, I'm going to talk about this first. If I'm going to be touring at all, I'm going to have to figure out how to do this. No, what were those I, didn't, I didn't think about that at all. It was just like getting up there. And it was, it was really talking about COVID mm. is what was happening. Um, I'm not sure when or how I started talking about her. Interesting. I'm trying to think of those jokes that happened. How did they really unfold? Like a lot of this happens in sort of a, that weird, timeless zone of, of pandemic yeah. uh, uh, time, right? And also I'm in a, a, a PTSD state. We all are. Yeah. It's jarring. You know, every day with, you know, vaccines, are we getting vaccines? Are we testing? Are, you know, are we going out? I mean, it was, it was devastating. And I don't think we really talk about it. Like how, you know, I didn't know how we were going to come out of that. I mean, it was the collective PTSD of it all, of being that afraid and that weird and having, you know, everything shut. Down. It was devastating and bizarre. Mm-hmm. So I don't really remember how it unfolded. The hummingbird stuff started to evolve because that was real. But oddly, you know, when you're fucking sad, you'll go mystical. You need it. A couple days after that guy told me that, I'm just sitting on my porch and a hummingbird came right up to my head, just like, and I'm like, oh my God, Lynn, Lynn, you're a hummingbird now. Of course you are. That makes so much sense. And the food stuff, like it, I think it, the way it happened was me just talking about what was happening. Like, and it's in the special, you know, people would come over and they'd stand in the yard, you know, and then, the, you know, that's usually how my beats evolve is I'll say something and then see what comes out of me on stage. Yeah. And then, you know, if, if it sticks, it gets repeated. So I think that probably the first jokes that happened were you know, around that grieving process and, and yep. around people coming over and Troy across the street. And then, you know, the hanging on to hope, the books, the Joyce Carol Oates or the uh, uh, Joan Didion stuff and the, uh, you know, and then, you know, the hummingbird thing sort of evolved. Um, and, and you know, it all came from just talking about it and the TED Talk and the, uh, and the, the serious one person show, Mark Maron's Cottish. I think that, you know that was probably those were probably the first two really yeah so like, i cuz i so i imagine if your process of 
you're going up on stage. This is everyone there in the audience. This is probably their first show they've seen. Even if you've done a few shows, this is probably the first time they're in an audience. So you have to address COVID before anything else. And then you're doing that. And then, you know, depending on your time, you'll bring up what's happening in your life. And you're sort of in this great process and sort of it evolve out of that. Yeah, I don't know where the 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 gumption or the courage came for it, but I mean, it's not unlike me, you yeah. know, in, in the sense that, like, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm going to take chances, and you know, the chance I was taking was that, uh, you know, I was going to bum them out or not be able to manage the mm-hmm. sadness yeah. of my own sadness, and I think where it really started to evolve was not at the comedy store; it was when, you know, whenever I started to do Dynasty Typewriter where I do longer sets. Yeah. Where I could have the the freedom of mind and enough support from my people who were there for specifically to watch me work through it. Yeah. And also, you know, talking, you know, some about, you know, just I'm sure I processed a lot of it on the podcast as well. Uh but I think that's when when I had the support of a small audience of people where I could sort of stretch out, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you could start to find things and I could have emotions yeah. like, you know, at dynasty typewriter, if, if I got choked up or, or I couldn't process it properly or, you know, that was okay. Yeah. You know, I could, you know, I could sit in it because the space was held by, you know, by my fans. Yeah. And, and, and that's when, you know, I began to, to actually process the grief and 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 find relief in talking about it in a funny way. You alluded to a little bit, but there would be stories I've I've heard other comedians tell of, especially around certain divorces. You go up on stage at Luna or whatever and just vent about it, and there'd be a sort of rawness to it. Do you feel like you you've matured as a person or a comedian? Where now, when you're doing it, was not as uncontrolled. You're trying to be more respectful to the situation and just sort of the audience is what they were looking for no (laughs) (laughs) that's fine (laughs) and i don't know but i I don't know that it's a it's i don't know that it's about maturity Mm -hmm. you know i i think that that creative risk is what it is and that you know the one thing that i've i'm grateful for in that you know what has happened over the years is that you know i i have people who um you know who who want to see me you know yeah. and i have a fans and who know me very well i mean the one thing that the the podcast affords me is a type of 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 candidness you know that is you know that transcends comedy yeah. right so you know these people know me i mean it's one sided but but i don't so all all i've ever done was write through improvisation improvisation yeah. through 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 out loud talk like it, like it's a very odd thing man and i don't know anybody that does it like i can have ideas like i can have ways i want to go you know like i can think like well here's a direction and you know this is what i'm thinking about and here's the direction like i'll make a note you know talk about this and it it the the funny is going to come from me being forced to be funny. Yeah, yeah. I mean that I mean that's it's not like, you know, I just wrote a great tag. No, no, I'm totally relying on the the, the muses of whatever. 
I'm totally yeah. relying on the great zeitgeist of of not zeitgeist the 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 id of 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 uh, eternal comedy, yeah, to deliver me things on stage, and it, that's the most exciting thing. But but it really comes from from that from that that moment like when you're younger, you're you know when. Yeah, I don't know what you do, but when you feel uncomfortable, you feel cornered, you know, I'm, I'm going to try to make a joke. Yeah. So ultimately what I've learned is that what I do in terms of writing is I corner myself on stage in front of people. Yeah. Right. So whether or not, I, I don't know that I was emotionally prepared, but I don't know it at the time when I did that show about my divorce, when I was going through it, you know, I don't know what the hell I thought. I may, I, I yeah. may, maybe it was indulgent, but I didn't. Pr- I wasn't promoting it as a finished show. I was doing it in the fucking basement of the Bleecker Theater when Berbiglio was doing his full production upstairs, almost yeah. mocking me. I was in this gloomy catacomb, screaming angrily about a woman leaving me, and he's up there being cute. <laughs> but, but, but dealing with death. Is yeah. different because it's it's not bitter. Yeah. Like the rawness is a different kind of rawness. It, you know, and 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 what happens is, you know, when you're angry, you know, people can be like, "All right, so this guy's pissed off, and you know, it's not it's not great. It's not mm-hmm. entertaining. I'm sorry he's going through that." But there is an empathy, there or not an empathy. There's a sympathy for somebody going through yeah. grief. I mean, it's not everybody's idea of entertainment. I'm not sure it was entertainment, but I don't know that I thought about the audience. Yeah, I was wondering or, that because because you, having spoken to you, have listened, there's always this balance of, I'm a comic, I know how to do the job, I do the job, the job is to get the audience to laugh. And then there's also the part of you, which is the, I am a comedian, I wrestle on stage, I, I'm doing this, I am beating myself up or self-exploring and the audience gets to witness this. And it does feel like it's always a balance, especially in this writing state. It is, and it's constantly evolving, and it's just the yeah. nature of what I do. I've had to accept this, man. I mean, you know, I've had to accept, you know, that I'm definitely not an arena act. You know, I, I've had to accept that, like, you know, that, like, how, how whatever miracle turn my career took that enabled me to to be successful as a comic and as a podcaster or whatever, to have an audience, you know, I and I have to accept that, like, this is what I do, man. You know, and it's like... It's not irresponsible. I have a good business going. I have mm-hmm. people respect what I do. I think I'm doing great work, but I still, you know, as I get older, I start to realize, you, you know, that, and I, and I realized it a long time ago with, you know, my assumption when I was doing Luna and stuff was that I was doing comedy for everyone, that mm-hmm. the, whether people knew it or not, they had a, an angry, bitter person inside of them, and I was speaking that. And it turns out that's just not true. And yeah. a lot of people were uncomfortable. A lot of people felt bad for me. Uh, a, a lot of people were like, "Wow, that was weird." It, but you know, a few people were like, "Yeah, man." But but it wasn't it wasn't across the board. It was not a mainstream approach. Mm-hmm. But I still think there's part of me that's like that, and I, I imagine it's a self centeredness of some kind, where like I don't like I really until two days ago like I'm not sure I would have considered myself a dark comedian like I knew I mean I knew but I just always thought like this is all pretty reasonable stuff this is not you know 
But then I realized, like, I've always been this. And I've always, this is the area that I, I, I yeah. live in. I can do light stuff. I talk about my cats. But, like, this, like, the, the timing of this thing for me in terms of where we're at culturally is, like, now there's all these comedians like, I'm an anti-woke comic, man. I'm anti-woke, and that's why I don't get work. Really? You think that's the reason? <laughs> yeah, man, we can't say anything anymore. Like, me and all the other anti-woke comedians, we all want to say our version of the same three things, and you just can't... You can't say anything anymore. I realize that, like, I, you know, there's nothing particularly, you know... This is this is the real edge. Yeah. Whatever I did on this special, I mean, those are those are the real risks. Yeah, it did seem like that when I watched, it, especially towards the end, you're like, this is a case for what is challenging material. This is dark joke. This is this is the hard stuff. It's not hard to say the words people don't like to an audience that does like you saying those words. That is not hard. What is hard is to to be vulnerable in this way and, to and take chances yeah you know to take you know that that where there's real risk in yeah. a way i think what is interesting you know about this material how it's different than sort of your time when you're being let's say more angry is you were doing this at a time where everyone there was processing COVID as well right it's like part of the themes of the specials you talk about is like this is not unusual there's not there's nothing unusual about people dying and that's extremely the case at this one time in history when you were working on it do you think that uh that did that impact how you approach material did it help sort of focus that did you feel like it allowed you to be with people in, in the space they were even though it was you're doing a specific story but it kind of fit in no in that uh, for way? sure i mean like you know i you know right up until you know the night of the taping you know i was doing 15 20 minutes of of covid based material you know it's just like i didn't have the time you know yeah. there's still you know there because and i also didn't know how it would age ultimately and and i also didn't feel like it was tremendously different from anyone else talking about covid right so but it's, it's interesting to me that people can still make references to tv shows from you know 40 years ago but all of a sudden it's like well, why are you still talking about covid i'm <laughs> like wow what does that even mean but <laughs> but 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 you know I made a choice to to stay with this the narratives I've chosen but yeah I was very aware yeah that we'd all been through it and so were they and I was doing that material really up until you know the special I just chose not to do it yeah, yeah that but... you know the day before you know like mm -hmm. I was working with 90 to minutes to two hours of stuff that they really wanted me to get down to an hour and I got down to a miraculous 64 and a half but um but but I think what 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 becomes interesting about you know I I knew where we were all at but but I yeah. think in this special and I don't know if you noticed it like I was also clear that you were seeing the full spectrum of of what I do mm. as a comic almost in in chapters like you know up front I'm like all right this 1520 is going to be me doing my aggressive cultural commentary you know in that voice that is mine yeah. but then like when i sit down to talk about lynn i'm like all right this is a change you know when i yeah. start talking about age i'm like all right well i'm going to talk about me now but i had to talk about other stuff and i'm sorry if i yelled at you but but <laughs> you know but but now but now i'm here and i'm going to talk about me
And then at the end, I was like, now we're going to do the lighthearted, fun dark stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now we're closing it. it. It reminded me so much. It combined kind of your last two specials together, right? Where, like, End Times Fun was the the screaming guy talking about culture guy. And Too Real, you sat for a lot of it. It was much more about aging and dying. And it did feel like where both those specials, I, I appreciated that they're sort of focused on one part of your persona. This did feel very holistic, which was sort of nice about it. Yeah, and I like. I hope I don't keep hitting the same bells. I don't feel that I am, but I imagine like I, I guess the topics become the same. Yeah, I, if I think about it, you know, too real. Because someone like some idiot on a comment board said like we've heard this stuff before. It's like you haven't really. I mean, I you know I think all these things are an ongoing conversation with yeah. me. Like, and I don't have kids. I have cats, and you know I am getting older, and you know, and my parents are getting older, and I did experience this death. Like, I don't know what I'm supposed to talk about. You know, so. So, like, I guess subject matter wise, this is this is this is what I talk about. Yeah, these yeah. These things. Yeah. But but they don't, you know, they they you know, and I and I and I tend to sort of hit the Jew note as much as I can. I think I'm more aggressively uh, critical of of religion in this one uh, in a very mm-hmm. specific way. I do think that 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 piece on on Roe v. Wade. I just I could not wait to get that on to get that recorded because like, here's how crazy I am. I'm like, dude, I, you know, someone else is going to come up with that. Like, I gotta, I gotta get that out there before someone comes up with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, like that one, like I called like people, like I called a tell or maybe Patton and Stanhope. I was like, yeah, have you heard anything like this? And they're like, what? I'm like, okay, good. No, a lot of it has to do with the language of choice, which is it, it, it's, it's practical. It's medical, you know, abortion, abortion clinic, easy to demonize, scary. Like if we shifted some of the language, we might be able to bridge uh, a gap and have a conversation with people of faith. Maybe just, maybe we call them angel factories. You know, in the special, you, you say the first joke you thought of about Lynn, which maybe not be the first one you did, but you, you, you tell a whole story that ends. It's like, that's the first yeah. joke you thought of. You know, was that the first joke you thought of? And also what did it feel like to have a funny thought in that moment? It was amazing. Because it was so, it was so beautifully horrible mm. and hilarious. But now I find out that people do that. Like it's not uncommon, you know. Which which I thought would fuck the joke up. Like I'm yeah. like, because like I, you know, I heard that uh, you know, This American Life had a, like an episode where that was discussed, and I'm like, oh fuck, is that is this still funny? It's hilarious. Yeah. Um, but no, it was the idea of that because. Having experienced that, and I'm very specific in walking people through that experience. Yeah. It was horrendous, devastating, horrible to see somebody that you love dead on a gurney, you know, propped up. Mm -hmm. And the fact that that line could counter that I just thought it was amazing. Yeah. And I didn't know. I, well, I told you, I, I said in the special, I, t- I, I didn't know what to do with that. I didn't even know if it was wrong in a way. That you even, that wrong that you had the thought at all? Well, just that, that like, was it morally inappropriate? And then I'm mm-hmm. like, what are you talking about? You've done the worst kind of things on stage. Like, you, you know, for all this talk about woke and anti-woke, I mean, I've been in this business a long time and I definitely was a angry shock driven con. I, there's nothing I haven't done on stage. Yeah. I haven't, you know, been 
homophobic or totally misogynistic, but you know, there, there have been moments, learning moments along the way, uh, which I think is normal. But, but in that moment, like, you know, I thought it was so funny. I had to tell somebody. So I called Dan Vitale and he broke up laughing and he says, I don't know what you can do with that. I'm like, I don't know either, but, but I knew in my heart that like, I'm going to figure out a way to get that on stage Yeah, because it really is just about respecting her memory. Right. And also the idea of what would she expect out of me and would she like it? I don't know. And like all that stuff about, you know, the lights in Ireland. So I'm in Dublin doing that a show recently and I do that bit and the lights in the venue started going on and off. The, 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 the lights on me started wavering and everyone in the room was like, Oh my God. And I'm like, (laughs) take it easy. Hi Lynn. I'm glad you're in Ireland. You love it here. You good? And then it was like, okay. And, and I did. And I, thought, I took it as a sign that, okay, she likes its jokes. Yeah, that yeah. just happened. And yeah. like, I had only talked about that on stage a couple of times and it became part of the special. That's why I like doing comedy the way I do it is because things happened that night that never happened before and they were good. You know, the other beat outside of that sticky joke was, you know, I asked a person at the venue, the lighting person, if this ever happened before, and, and she said that it hadn't. And I'm like, it's wild, because she's usually a bird. You know, when I said, I'd never said that before. She's usually a bird. And it was so good. But I just, I, I'm so excited as a comic that I, I have the courage to make that space for myself. Yeah. To stay open like that. On the night of the special. I've done yeah. specials that were very tight. End Times Fun was pretty fucking tight. Yeah. And it was a little too tight. And the and the and the venue wasn't great uh mm-hmm. for me. It was a little too sterile. And uh, but but yeah, but like I'm I that's what's exciting about it for me, really. So the you know, as you get into the joke itself that we're talking about, you so before that night, when you would introduce that you're talking about it, right? It's sort of a like that joke? A, yeah. That what the introduction to the that twenty minute oh, chunk oh, right. is a sort of like a that you're near like, so we're talking about the mortality thing, you just sort of sit down. And it's it's if anything, it's as much a body language thing as a what you're saying. Like you don't really need to be like, and now we're gonna talk about it. Uh. Is that how it always would go? Did you ever be like, I need to open big? I mean, like, it does seem like that joke that you found that night yeah. was what you needed. <laughs> the whole time. Yeah, yeah. Well, I got right. Thank God it happened, right? But no, what what, what happened was is I just I trusted my audience. Yeah. Like I, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not out there in an arena. I mean, these people know me. So I knew that I could experience those emotions that were genuine and not funny, but and trust them and then and then get to the funny. So I, yeah. I you know, like the risk of that is really it's like I knew by the time I did the special that I would be able to pull us out of it. Yeah. That like I'm not just going to be like, well, she died and uh, I, don't know, I don't know what I'm going to do. You know, like so, <laughs> you know. <laughs> right. But yeah. So when you you say, you know, you, you say Lynn's name and immediately one person applauds. So then everyone else does. Is I that what know. happened every time? No, no. So then you no. say, I assume it's a. I assume that's you for have the right that... reason. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, that's just me. You, you know, like that muscle's always 
ready. Yeah. You know, as, as, as it's just the kind of comic I'm, I mean, I'm, I, you know, there's something in there that's going to, you know, take a shot if I, if I got a shot, right. Or if I feel, you know what I mean? But, but that audience, most of that's the second show. Yeah. And I had to work. They weren't easy. Like the first show, they, they were just like trigger happy. It was ridiculous. Like it was, it was sort of like, well, I appreciate the support. But second show it was sort of like, oh shit, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna have to move around. So like, I don't, you know, I didn't. I they were still my people, yeah. But like, I had to earn the laughs. So like, that has a lot to do with my energy. The second show, I was a little kind of, uh, a little scattered, yeah. You know, and well, this is, yeah, and I think that you know, I don't even know if I did that line. The first show, I think I just like trusted them enough to to ride this wave because they were so excited to be there. But second show was sort of like, well, I got to do the job, I guess. Yeah. And I'm up, and I can see it in my eyes when I look at that trailer. You know, that first line that I have, I'm like, I'm like, I am on top of it. You know what I mean? Like, I'm like, I'm like, these people are not going to sink me. Yeah, you, you know? like, you stand back up to do it yeah you then there is a very funny moment where you get that line there's laugh and it feels like you make direct eye contact with one person and you say take it easy you'll be okay I'll, i can get right back into the sad tone yeah. Yeah. is yeah. that is that are there people there that you can tell you're like oh i have to manage people like is there a lot of audience maintenance for for this show for this part of it that you were doing i don't know i don't like i do lock in on certain people sometimes i do it less than i used to because i had to be conscious about that because it's very exhausting for the people that i lock in on um you know if i do it for the whole show you know they're yeah. like oh my god i thought you were talking right to me i'm like i kind of was i'm sorry you okay yeah i'm okay you know but uh but no i think it's a general sense of the uh, the emotional nature of my people yeah you know, they're they're generally you know fairly sophisticated people. They're they're sensitive. Uh, a lot of them are older, like in my age group. Uh, a lot of them are, are are aggravated. A lot of them are women, uh, and I, I, it's a very odd bunch. But I think that when I talk to the audience, I'm talking to my general sense of who I think they are. Mm. Sometimes I'm talking to individuals. Yeah. So you know, the next joke is. You, you describe you're not a person who's like she's dead. Where are the bits? Yeah, who yeah. is when you imagine that person? Who's who are who are you saying you're not? Like what is the person you want to communicate? And it's partly also saying like these jokes are different than those jokes, right? It's like sort of clarifying your position. So what were you trying to communicate there? That essentially that I that I had no way as a professional comedian to approach that event yeah like i i don't i don't guess there's comics out there like all oh, right she's, but i was that kind of guy there was a time like i came up like that where yeah. it's sort of if something fucking goes down like how are you gonna do it even though it's totally inappropriate that was the school you come from i did you know i, re I remember there's a great story that i that i like anyways where <laughs> um it was back i think i i really believe it was Louis was doing his first Letterman, right? And like two days or something before, or maybe even the day before, it the Oklahoma City bombing happened. And him and I are walking around the east side, and he's like, "I don't know, I don't know if it's going to affect my set or what." Like, because it just happened. I'm like, "Well, you're going to talk about it, right?" <laughs> he's like, what? I'm like, "You got to talk. You got to talk about it." He's like, "Do I?" 
I'm like, yeah, you, I mean, right. How are you not going to talk about it? So apparently he goes to Letterman and he says to Bob Morton, who was the producer at the time, he says, you know, I was talking to Marin and, you know, he feels like I, I should talk about the Oklahoma city thing. And Morton said, yeah, that's why Marin's not doing the show. <laughs> so, so there, there is part of me that was that guy. So maybe I was yeah. talking to myself. Yeah. Well, it is. It's talking to the part of you that is that guy. Mm. But it's also so, you know, you, you mentioned the, the idea of I was not the victim of, of this. She was. And I was curious how that impacted your approach of, of the stand up in general, because, you know, stand up is a first person POV art form. But you also don't want to speak for her or for these other people. How did you navigate that? I think I just kept it on my experience of it with, with that in mind, you know, like, I, I mean, you know, there was more like, it was just delicate, mm -hmm. you know? So w what I focused on was how, how does this, how can I, in, in a proactive way, hmm. share the grieving process? You know, how did I feel better? You know, what did I do? So like, and I think all those jokes speak to how do I feel better? What do I yeah. do? Whether it's, you know, talking about it in a different tone or a different way or or being mystical and seeing things in things or, you, you know, finding, you know, relief through other people. I think I, I, I run the gamut of, of uh, and, and really sort of address of the idea that you want to feel better, but yeah. you don't have any control over it. And it's just going to be what it's going to be. But it is, you know, it is yeah. there, you know. We'll be right back with more Mark Maron. Calling all female runners. It's time to lace up and join Team Milk. Since the 2022 New York City Marathon, Team Milk has sponsored female marathon runners nationwide, providing support and shining a spotlight on their unique stories, perseverance, and drive to go the distance. Why milk? Dairy milk is an excellent nutritional ad for both marathon training and recovery. Milk contains 13 essential nutrients, including high-quality protein, making it a crucial component of a training diet. Plus, it's one of the best beverages for hydration, even better than water. The same electrolytes that are added to many of your favorite sports drinks are found naturally in milk. And in 2024, Team Milk is taking the next step to empower female runners by launching the only women's marathon in the U.S. designed for and by women. Built to be accessible, empowering, and community building, the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. And I'm back with Mark Marin. So, you know, the next thing is you you do the sort of extended Mark Marin's Caddish uh, build yeah. out. And I feel yeah. like the sort of one man show as a punchline or as a area is a, is 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 a, is a common one for you. What, how did that evolve? Where did that come from? Is a, I couldn't tell if it is a, supposed to be a pun or not on the Mourner's Cottage. Like I couldn't tell if your Marin and Mourner were supposed to sound like, or if that's just. Oh, oh no, I, I, I'll take it, but I'm not that sure. uh, not that clever. I've done those kind of shows. Yeah, like I've tried to do those. Shows. Like I've done 
you know, there was a time where, you know, that was a way, you know, if you couldn't sort of land your comedy or you had more you wanted to talk about, you'd do a one person show. Yeah. And it was, it, it always felt like a kind of an excuse, but you know, I kind of evolved out of that. You know, I, I would say that, you know, my producer sort of brought it to my attention that like, I'm more like I, I'm a mixed legacy really you, you, you know you can put me in the spalding gray camp or you can put me in you know the stand-up comedy camp but i mean it's definitely those things i come from that kind mm-hmm. of dialogue that kind of tradition but the one man show was just funny to me because that's what people do you know if you're a performer if you're an actor like you know some people like if there is one of the bits person it's a one-man show person yeah. You know, when somebody dies, you know, after, after a certain point, they're like, someone goes like, you really have to do a show about, it. you know? So, <laughs> so I, I thought, well, that's funny. You know, it, yeah. the performance of you doing the mourners cottage at the oh, lights up. You do it. It's you're so locked in. <laughs> I know. Yes. Yeah, I really I you know, I am. Yeah. I just love the sound of that. And it's so great for non-Jews. Like, it's such a jarring thing. Like, if you're a Jew, you've heard that melody a million times. Yeah. But, if you, but if you're not a Jew, it's sort of like, oh, my God. He's, like, really Jew in it, you know? Um, what, did, what did Jewishness mean to you in the grieving process? You mentioned a little bit the, the, the Zoom shift you did. But what did, you know, you're not a religious person, but obviously Jewishness is important to you. And there are, I think death is one of the things that Judaism is better at than other things about it. You know, what did it mean to you? How did it help? Or, I, I don't you know? know if there was anything practical uh, that I don't know that it helped me other than, you know, the idea of, of may her memory be a blessing is, uh, is, 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 is pretty strong. Yeah. That, you know, to, to, to realize that that is possible, that that is aspirational. That you're going to get to a place on the other side of this where whatever time you spent with them was a gift and that, mm. you you know, you will appreciate that. I mean, that's, you know, that's, that's a big deal. And also just the nature of Shiva, you know, was okay. It was, you know, the, because it was raw, you know, when, when Michaela did that, you know, you got 20 boxes of heads in there of people that knew this woman or were, you know, for years or her family or you know, people were crying. People, and it was like it was raw and weird, and it was mm-hmm. different than a shiva. You know, because like uh, you know, when you sit shiva, you sit in the house. You, you know, the everything's turned off. You know, the mirrors are turned around, and you just eat. Yeah, and you and you do that for a week or whatever. And I don't know that I've ever fully sat a shiva, but you know, my brother came, and we had to sort through her stuff. We had to go to her new house that she had just rented. She had just moved. Yeah, but. But I, I don't know that it was a, a Jewish thing, but I mean, the idea of of that support, you know, on a daily basis was powerful. Yeah. And there's something very practical about Judaism. Like, I've been doing these bits lately where as a Jew, like, you know, people ask you, like, well, is there a heaven? I'm like, yeah, I, I couldn't tell you. I don't know. I'm not sure any of us know. You know, is there a hell? Yeah. I was never told. So, yeah, yeah. so there's, <laughs> you know... I'm sure there are answers to this, but I'm no Talmudic scholar. You know, I'm not studying the Kabbalah, yeah. but there is comfort to it. You know, because I'm not sitting here going like, well, she's in a better place. You know, I'm going, I'm like, she's dead and this is fucking horrendous. Yeah. So, you know, what do we do? Well, you sit with other people and we did yeah. that, you know, so. 
So that was helpful. But I, I don't know if I was totally aware of the, the Jewishness of it other than, you know, it's in my bones. I mean, as it relates to the show, there's a Jewishness and a sort of defiant Jewishness is a big part of the show. I was thinking, you know, last time we spoke, which was with the last special, we were talking about opening for Paul Mooney and the experience of seeing yes, him. right, right. Yeah, yeah. People who don't think they're racist, defying them to be the part of themselves that are racist. And it did feel like, you know, Paul also passed during this time period that there was that with Jewishness, which is like this is. There's this is audience is not anti-Semitic, but you were like being like, there's we're going to nudge you when yeah. you want to be like, shut up, Jew. Yeah. Yeah. That was the intention. Yeah. I mean, I just like I can't I don't know what else to do in the face of uh, of uh, of um, normalized anti-Semitism. Yeah. I don't know what else to do. You, you know, do we shut up? Yeah. It's just one of these things. So like arguably. Yeah, it's not like I'm I'm reaching across the aisle to find dialogue. Yeah. Yeah, but it's definitely a fuck you. And it's gotten worse. Like I'm doing it worse. Like like that stuff is evolving. You're you just know, because, pushing it more. Yeah, because it's like what the fuck is wrong with you? Yeah, I mean it's like there's one Jew to a million non-Jews. How are we running everything? It just, that can only indicate that you're stupid. I mean, it, it, somebody had to do it. Mm-hmm. You're know, like I can't like I know it's provocative, and and I did it my last special too. And it's weird because it's not my life. It's not. It's not like I'm living a Jewish life other than being Jewish. But yeah. but I do feel the terror in my bones of anti-Semitism. Yeah. And at the pitch it was at, like, because you know the last special, you know, we were we were in the middle of a fascist takeover of our of our country. Mm-hmm. Like that's the way I saw it. So I was freaking out every fucking day. And, you know, and this and during this special, you know, like he was still president when COVID hit. It was a nightmare waking up every day to his dumb face and then to this horrible disease. But but yeah, but the fact that, you know, there's there's some sort of normalization going on around the anti-Semitic contingent within our 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 population, like it, it just is and it's out. It's like it's horrendous. So, yeah. so I don't know if I'm making that better, but but I, I I do know that it's the opposite of hiding. Yeah, yeah. You're making it undeniable. You're you're making it so people who think it might not be a problem be like, oh, you. Ha-, it's making them realize the problem in themselves. Hopefully, yeah. Hopefully, I mean, you know, it's a little aggressive. <laughs> but that's the point. It's yeah. it's literally. The definition of what provocative it is. It is to provoke a response. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We get it, Jew. <laughs> we... <laughs> so then you go into the TED Talk. Uh, how did that evolve? What did that mean to you? I just thought it was funny because it's uh, it just is what that is, you know. Because I, I, I think, I don't know, if, I talked to somebody who was a grief person who wrote books about grief and did a TED Talk about grief. I'm like, well, that's a way to, I could do that. I'm so glad that beat worked that well on the taping because it's really... It's a subtle beat. These sort of like, you know, I'm Mark Marin. I'm a comedian. Yeah. It's like it totally it has to really it it just really landed in the special. Because like a lot of times people don't get the humor cuz the tone has to be just right, you know. Everybody yeah. dies. I you know, and it, it it landed that night, thank God. They're both they're both sort of acting relate like they're both act outs obviously but they really are nuanced performances. Do you like you've acted more and more in the last ten years than you have? Like you've really been. Do you feel like 
the acting work you've done has translated to your stand up? Do you feel like you're a better actor even in those moments where you're you're like you're being a TED Talk person and you embody it enough that it can sell a joke like that? At different points in my life, I've made decisions to do things I was uncomfortable with or things I needed to get better at. And I, I do know that before I was acting a lot that I was like, I have to I have to act out more on stage. Like I was always n- nervous about it. I was always afraid of it. But at some point, all the fear went away uh, yeah. uh, on, on stage. So I'm like, all right, well, now do some other things. You know, like you can, you know, be, be physical. I always... I enjoy physical comedians. Like it's like my guilty pleasure. Like I'd yeah. much rather watch some goofball than than somebody's like me, you know. So, <laughs> uh, and I always envied it. But I, I I thought to myself, I must have good physical timing. Yeah. I just have to do it. Yeah. So it was a conscious decision as a stand-up performer, you know, years ago to do that. But I I did. They, I'm I'm sure they feed each other. Yeah. Um. Were there other examples of like in the sort of cottage, the the one man show, TED Talk type vein of like, oh, could it be this type of performance or you sort of had those two? No, I think they it just sort of landed on those two. And, I, and then I always thought like, you know, do should I go further with the TED Talk? You know, is mm-hmm. there more to be had there or was the beat of just the thing enough? And same with cottage, you know, it, could it, you know, can I go further? And uh and I, and I and I thought about it, and I think I I might have tried to to push the TED talk further along, but I, then I just I don't know I kind of realized like this is the beat, dude. Yeah, it's, it's not the TED talk is not the comedy; it's the idea of the TED talk. Yeah, yeah, it's the idea of you figuring it's setting up you how to figure out how to do something about yeah, it. Yeah, right. Um, you know this section, this entire Lynn section ha- happens exactly thirty minutes in. It lasts almost exactly 20 minutes. You know, once you had the material and, you know, how did you then decide where in the set it would go? I moved it. I moved things around sometimes. And I, there were different there were times on the road where I'd open with it, where I thought, like, you know, maybe we go the other way and build towards the, the less personal. Mm. But then I just realized, like, look, dude, no matter what section you do, it's all pushing the limit a little. So, mm. you know. Your best put this in the middle because it'll ground you. And, you know, I have enough confidence as a performer that I didn't feel like I was going to, you know, drive the thing into a ditch. I knew I could get out. Hmm. I generally know that I can get out of whatever hole I've put myself in or dug, hmm. um, you know, 90% of the time. Yeah. So I wasn't afraid of it coming anywhere and I knew it was going to be challenging, but it really. The, the sort of like from going from that first part and then do the aging thing. Didn't I do that first? I you think do, I do the aging. Yeah, thing. yeah, aging. Yeah, because you have the like. Right. Uh, there's a different time. Is the right. Bit right so before. there's the mortality thing, and there's yeah. me, and then I'm like, you know, it just made sense there. The thing that really begun to be kind of a albatross is like, you know, is this cultural commentary necessary? Hmm. But really, it all hinged on that abortion stuff. I'm like, if I don't put that out in the world, I, I would be remiss. I would be like, how can I not deeply offend so many people when I have the perfect thing to do it? It's, and they, they they have to fight themselves to not laugh at that. It's also so interesting, the the instinct of, you know, you have this sort of bit that's it will bring the audience in. It's meant to do that. But you're like, I can't I can't let it be that easy. I can't just let anybody in. It needs to be people that pass certain sort of 
let's say test again it's a, you're you're able to get different energies from this room the easiest thing to do with a special is just be a high energy person just ramp up the energy sort of cool down whatever but you are yeah. like you're getting highs and lows and you're yeah. you know it, it, yeah. it's trying to figure it out oh dude sometimes at the end of my hour or hour and a half i'm like has this been going on a week like i mean like there's so much shit in this thing emotionally yeah. you know so I believe you mentioned the the production of the, for shooting special was pushed back, um, and that gave you a whole lot of more time to spend on this piece. And you said you spent it finding through lines and fleshing out themes. You know, what did that look like? What came from sort of having it mostly done, but having more time to think about it? Well, the the thing I thought was like, well, great, we got more time. I'll get it down to an hour. Mm-hmm. You know, while I'm out there, never happened. Uh, you know, like it, it's always like the week before. I'm like making big cuts. Yeah. And then like, you know, two shows before the special, I tried to do it in an hour, you know. But there is the idea that like I've grown to appreciate and like callbacks. So I I, I, I wanted to find those mm-hmm. uh, if they were possible. And there are. There are a couple in there. Um, and like I think I probably overdid it, uh, the callback thing with uh, – the last couple specials just because I was like, I can do this. Like, look, I, there was a point there where like after I think Thinky Pain where I'm like, dude, you're going to have to let the notebooks go and be a professional. Yeah, yeah. You know, like <laughs> it's like you don't even look at him enough with this, you know, like, you know, you know, you're all you're just riffing thing. You know, it's your job. You yeah, know, put yeah. together a special, you fucking idiot. So <laughs> with uh, more later and too real, I was like, there you go, Mike Birbiglia. You know, like. Look what I did. Look, I did a one man show. All it takes is a callback or two. You know. And then and then, and then like more later, then I had a structure in place and I could yeah. do it. So when I talk about theme, it's sort of like, you know, what what really don't you need? Mm. You know, what what's going it's it's it, it's like writing a script of it or anything else. Like I, I the cultural stuff I was sort of like weeded out. You know, like we can lose the 12, 15 minutes of COVID stuff. How do you set up the Roe v. Wade stuff? Do that. You want to keep the stupid people thing? There's a lot of mil- there's a lot of other things I was adding in there that were funny, but I was sort of like, make it lean. Don't stay. Don't say the same thing twice. Yeah. You know, with two different jokes. So that that process starts, and then you know, with the the personal stuff, it's like, well, make sure that this stuff runs well. That there's a continuity. That you know that you know, what jokes are you leaning on? You know, the, you know, the hummingbird thing. And yeah. that becomes a callback. Right. Mm-hmm. When I'm having sex with the other woman, is that in there? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, good. So, you know, that kind of stuff starts to take shape in the time I took uh, that I had more time. And also like, you know, making the closer sort of stronger, like in, you know, for a while there, you know, how many beats can I do with that thing? You know, and, and I want to hit all those notes. And I, I, there was one thing I fucked up, but I'll live with it, you know. I, I missed a beat on rubbing my dad's head. Like, I do that right from the beginning. I should have done it got right it. at the, the first beat, and it would have built. But I got it in there, but it, was, yeah. it, it could have been a little better. But I'll, I'll be all right. You hold up this idea of anti-woke. You don't contrast. Or you don't say the difference. You go, like, they say they're anti-woke, or they think they're this, they're that. But you sort of let it be. You sort of show instead of tell that. How did that evolve where you well, realize I mean, what you're I, doing? I've done I've done other versions of you know what is what does it mean to be woke and why is it bad yeah and it was a little explainy mm-hmm. 
you know, and then I just started to, you know, I, I discussed some things with my producer about, you know, what does it really mean? What are they really saying? Like the stupid people thing was in place and the Rogan fan thing was in place. You know, mm -hmm. the the attaching the uniform thing to the, the end of the Rogan thing was, had to have that in there. Yeah. But, but really it came down to the wire of, you know, you know, we wanted to be able to say the same three things differently. You know, that was really it. But I'd explain it more. But yeah. I think I rendered it down pretty good. And and also, like, and I want to make it clear, I'm not totally woke. Mm -hmm. that, there, that this special isn't some moral arbiter. I'm not some righteous, you know, completely uh, uh, respectful lefty. Yeah. You know, like, but, you know, I can live. It's like the the joke from the last special. I'm about 85% woke and the other 15% I keep to myself, which is being woke. So yeah, yeah. like, you know, and when I say like, you know, because I'm anti-woke, it's after that joke. That is just a relentlessly insensitive joke about, you know, having a family member who's a drug addict. Yeah. But but I had to do it. And I, and I believe, too, that that it brings relief to people who have drug addiction. I think, you know, preparing, I think one of the many issues that will come up is that there's no reason why they're doing what they're doing. They're just doing it where it seemed like you're not just scolding. You're not saying they're doing bad. You know what they're trying to do. But what you're doing is offering a, a version of it that has some value, that is doing the hard work, that is making some sort of I, point. Look, I'm just saying that there are hacks and it's an angle. Yeah. And, and you know, that's really, you know, the, the big unsaid thing is that... Yeah. Anti-woke is the new hack is that, you know, you've got like minded people who fill these rooms because they don't know how to assess funny unless it's bullying or unless it's in, you know, totally bad taste. There's no nuance to it. So yeah. you have a lot of people that, you know, and, and look, plenty of people who are not innately that funny become comics and they can become good comics if they can figure it out. But, yeah. you know, this is just an excuse to to ride, you know, the momentum of an audience that's been built on these premises that, you know, for a bunch of free thinkers, they all think that this, the same thing. Yeah. And it's, it's like three things that they, they poke at and it's like, it's hackneyed. They yeah. are the hacks and they are, you know, the group think victims. Yeah. It's really kind of profound, but yeah. uh, unfortunately a lot of people on the other side creatively, you know, don't have the wherewithal to push back on it. Mm. They'll, they, you know, most people would rather just do what they do to who they do it to, and that's it. You know, you, because the pushback, you you know, you've got to take the hit, the mm -hmm. possible hit, you know, the pile on, you know? I do believe that there are lines now in terms of comedy and that they, they do function somewhat on political lines, though many of the people do not see themselves as right-wing people. They see themselves as libertarian. But all those comics are so easily appropriated by right-wing thought. Right. Yeah. So even if they think like, you know, I'm doing this or that, it's like, yeah, but you're being lumped in, dude, culturally. And there are these weird tribal lines being crossed and or being drawn. And they're, you know, they're the old school kind of progressive nature of of sensitivity and but also like taking shots at everybody is sort of falling to the wayside of people going, fuck you. I deserve to be able I'm entitled hmm. to do this because of this or that or free speech yes and you know uh anti-censorship you know so you know that that 
ideological place is is it's it's a front and it's enabling a lot of really uninspired untalented people to perform i mean what do i what i think is useful about your special is you 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 do present the alternative of what is actually meant for i i think about the the point you make and the joke you have about that there are hilarious people at auschwitz yeah um and I thought that was so interesting because it reminded me um, of a quote from Viktor Frankl's Man Search for Meaning, yeah. uh, which for those who don't know, was a firsthand account of life in the concentration camps and how people found the will to go on. Uh, and I'll read the quote. Uh, Humor more than anything else in the human makeup can afford an aloofness and an ability to rise above any situation, even if for a few seconds. Uh, does that resonate with you? Yeah, I, I think like, you know, I didn't have that in mind, but th- I think that's right. You know, uh, a, a few seconds, you know, that's a laugh, right? Yeah. But I mean, I was more sort of like the blueprint of that joke, I think, came more from Primo Levi from, uh, I think it's called Life in Auschwitz or Surviving mm-hmm. Auschwitz. I don't remember. It's a Primo Levi book about day-to-day life in Auschwitz yeah. of, of people who figured out ways to survive and get through by doing this or that. And then that always struck me like, well, there were people that survived and did what was necessary. And not all of it was totally morally compromising. Yeah. Right. Finding comedy out of the situation. What did you learn about the value of comedy or or what did it affirm or what did it show you? Well, oddly, what I learned is that, uh, you know, is something that the anti-woke guys, you know, kind of profess. And that is... You know, you can sort of do jokes about anything. Yeah. And they can be good. Yeah. And there is, you know, in some ways, you know, no right or wrong jokes, but you, it is uh, uh, your responsibility to to try to find some balance and not, you know, hurt people or disrespect people I- I- unless yeah. you want to. You know, it's up to you. You do have that right. But it did sort of have that that feeling of sort of like, you know, is this wrong? You know, like there was that question, is this disrespectful? Yeah. It was a specific thing. And I wasn't talking about a marginalized group unless you think of the dead as a marginalized group. But um, <laughs> they, don't, they don't have a, a, a you know, a public facing mm-hmm. uh, a leader that we know of. Maybe they do. But, uh, but nobody, you know, it's sort of, it's like Jack Kevorkian, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's like I used to do a bit about that. Like I used to do a bit about, but it was, that was a different bit about how like uh, I should bring it back too. It was a great bit. I don't know if I gave it away or not. I did it once on Comedy Central about how the reason they don't have legal euthanasia here is because you know insurance companies would take advantage of it and they'd recommend it for everything. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if that, if that ankle's gonna heal, but we <laughs> have. But anyway, I think so, you bring it back now. They're do, don't they have legal? I feel like there's some states that now. Oh yeah, for sure. Legal? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah. Bring it back. You just can't let the can't let the insurance companies get hold of it because yeah, you, yeah, yeah. you're going to go in for minor depression. They're like, look, let's uh, let's just call it. Um, yeah. But no, but I did feel that you know there was always the question of is this correct? Yeah. To do these jokes, and I landed on the affirmative. Yeah. And and you know and and so that was. And that was a real question yeah. because, you know, I, I, I rode an edge with them. You know, if I was willing to be totally disrespectful, um, but she was my girlfriend and I loved her. But I mean, I've done jokes about the dead in my life mm. that were, you know, 
terrible, but I still like them. You know, like looking back on it, like that, there were jokes. You know, uh, uh, like there was a joke years ago about a plane crash. There was a plane crash, and a lot of people survived, but some people died, and you know, and a good percentage of the survivors went on to catch connecting flights. So I, I, I had this joke about the announcement in the terminals, like uh, for those of you who were uh, who are catching. Uh, Connecting flights, please check the board, whatever. For those of you who lost loved ones or traveling companions are on Carousel 7 in the baggage queen, you know. But, yeah. so, yeah, I've done that. I, like, I, I had a moment with with that joke where I was doing it in a bowling alley in Cranston, Rhode Island, in a bar where the comedy was, and some woman screamed, you know, stop talking about plane crash. And I knew that, like, you know, the jig was up and that it was bound to happen. yeah. yeah. That someone will have, have lost somebody. And I said, did you lose somebody in a plane crash? And she goes, yes. And I'm like, I'm so sorry. I, I'm just, I'll do my cancer chunk now. And, and, that, <laughs> and that relieved the tension. But, yeah. but I guess the point is, is like, to answer the question, you know, there is a thoughtful approach to this type of subject matter or any type of subject matter. But I do think that anything can be approached yeah. comedically. And did you, I mean, similarly, did you, what did you learn or affirm from about what the role of the comedian is? Like, in so much, did you learn, like, that is also its value? Like, is like the funniest guy at Auschwitz? Like, did you be like, that is ultimately who I am? Did you feel that way? Is that how, well, what no, was I that felt, experience well, like? I felt that the comedian's job really is to make, to, to sort of create things that make people see things differently. Like, yeah. to, to, to sort of present things that are difficult in, in through humor in a way that completely recontextualize them in someone's mind. Yeah. So I, I think at the core, I, a comedian should kind of blow your mind a little bit, right? But I also think that, you know, with this stuff and also with aging, I do think there is some sort of, uh, you know, kind of humanity uh, bonding thing that, you yeah. know, to sort of speak publicly about things that, you know, you don't, that are either, you know, inner monologues or just not, or taboo, uh, that it 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 there it, it relieves something. Yeah. And that relief may be challenging, mm. but but I I think it's probably good. You know, your last on the podcast it was March thirteenth, two thousand. Uh, what year is it now? Two thousand twenty. Right when the pandemic started, the day we spoke, the like an hour after we spoke, Donald Trump declared a national emergency. Really and. Yeah. And there was something you said that day that really resonated with me and it really defined a lot of how I thought about the pandemic in general, which is, you know, you said, you know, this period of history, the thing that's really going to stand out is how isolated everyone was. And again, this was before shutdown. It was just he just declared a national emergency. And I guess my question is working on this set, performing it for fans, being vulnerable in certain places, being boundary push in certain places and have them respond. Did it, you know, what did you learn about the potential for connection? You know, did it shape that? Did you learn something about what the audience and, and the comedian can get from each other? Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it, it's always sort of, you know, I don't know if I appreciate it enough in the moment, but it's always amazing to me. Like I, I still don't understand why people go to comedy clubs. So yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm glad they do, but you know, but there were times back in the day where, like, you know, when we were performing for nobody, when you're starting out and there's 10 yeah. people in the room, 
how grateful do you have to be for those 10 If you walked into a comedy show and you're one of eight people, I would be like, let's go somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but what I think what I did find is that, you know, in, in, in light of what you're saying, is that that is really going to be the big struggle. I think in isolation, you know, people can create aliases and, and anonymous uh, kind of personalities, uh, you know, sort of secondary uh or 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 um what a, adjacent voices mm. uh that 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 enter what we see as some kind of community online or on platforms that is is ultimately malignant and that mm. like i think what what happens when people are are in the flesh you know even if they're not like-minded people is that you know humanity can't be denied mm. you know in the best case situation and i think you know being at the precipice of you know, those kind of, you know, tribal instincts and anonymous voices kind of really shaping, you know, what happens out in the real world, not in the the sort of like insulated uh, bubbles. Like, you, you know, there was a time where, you know, at, at some point neighbors just killed their neighbors because they thought differently. That mm -hmm. something switches in the brain of humanity or in certain people and lots of them all at once where they can just, you know, kill the people they work with if they're given permission and it's for a cause. So, so me knowing that that's a reality has, I all I can realize is that all that we really have is the, the vulnerability and the sense of community of, of people behaving, you know, together Right. Yeah. So like there's something about audiences where you're like, these are all a bunch of people, like especially when I just do the comedy store. It's like, I don't know that, you know, I would hang out with a lot of these people, but like I can do this thing where they're all laughing. I did it last night. You know, like yeah. I'm, there's people up front like and I'm very aware now of, you know, of, I, I've always been a guy. I came up in comedy clubs. I'm not some product of, you know, of uh Luna Lounge. I mean, I started yeah. to, so the job was to, to make strangers laugh and I can still do that. And I still, yeah. you know, put a premium on that because it does give me hope. You know, it's like, it's, it's really the only thing that stands between us in, in fascism is the humanity yeah. of, 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 of decency that is available yeah. when groups of people get together. Right. Yeah. So when you look at a special, you're like, I'm grateful for the collection of audiences that resulted in this thing. Yeah, I, I'm grateful to to uh, yeah all of them and all of the people that have supported me throughout and to Lynn and and to the people that understand me, yeah. uh, you know, but but there, there's also it's a little bittersweet because I know that by nature of what I do, there's going to be a lot of people that are like, what is what the fuck? Fuck this guy. You know, and I'm, I, I don't really love that. Mm -hmm. But I do think it's part of my job. Yeah. Um, speaking, you know, in one of the WTF episodes a couple weeks after Lynn passed, uh, you talked about continuing forward with your work, you know, both a podcast and uh, comedy. And you said you wanted to embrace what Lynn saw in you. Um, and I thought that was really beautiful. And I was wondering, you know, what does that mean? And as you look at the work you've done in these nearly three years, have you been able to embrace that? I, yeah, totally. I think, you know, certainly with believing in myself as an actor and, you know, also like she had a, a, a lot of respect for my 
you know, for th- like, you know, for my sensitivity, for things that I didn't really, I don't really pay attention to in myself mm. for, you know, for my ability to, you know, to be present and work with other people um, and to be, you know, a relatively uh, good person and to, and to be, you know, vulnerable in my art. Um yeah, I mean, I, I definitely embrace it. I don't, I don't like, I, I know I would not act, be an actor without her really. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and when I did To Leslie, which is now an Academy Award nominated motion picture, you know, it was all about Lynn. You know, I mean, I remember when we started shooting that, but it was within that first year, right, of of her elite passing. And I thought that I have to do this for her. I have to use these emotions and, and, and honor her and take this chance. Yeah. Like that was the reason I took that role because I, I didn't see myself in it, but the director did, and and then I thought like you know about Lynn and how how to sort of honor her memory by 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 acting yeah. in this role that was going to be difficult but required a lot of me. So yeah, I mean I try to do those things, you know. Yeah, I I don't know. I, I really always wonder about you know those jokes, but you know, because you do say she would have liked that joke, but. I, I'm not sure. Well, yeah, like, and now wait for the lights to go out. <laughs> it's now time for the final segment of the show. It's called the Laughing Round. It is like a lightning round, but because this is a comedy podcast, I call it uh, the Laughing Round. Oh no! Yeah, you didn't like it the last time either. Oh. Um, it's it. These are easy questions, and you could pass if you don't have anything. All right. All so right. don't worry about it. Um, do you have a favorite joke joke? Um, I will say last time you mentioned there's Jewish jokes you like. I didn't know if you have a Jewish joke, like a jokey joke joke that oh. comes to mind. I used to really like um, the one about, you know, the grandfather and his grandson, the walking on the beach. You know, they're just ha- walking on a beach and all of a sudden, uh, you know, a wave comes and just sweeps his grandson into the water. Can't see him anywhere. And the grandfather goes, oh my God, my God, please, God, I've, I've done, I've been a, you know, a good Jew. I've done everything I could to be a good person. Deliver my grandson back to me. I'll do anything, please, God, please. And then another wave you know, just drops the kid back on the beach. And the grandfather looks at the kid and he looks up at the sky and he says, when he went in, he had a hat. <laughs> yeah, I know that one. Yeah, that's a good joke. I love that joke. Um, do you have a, a favorite time you've bombed where you bombed and you're like, this is fun. This is good. No. <laughs> okay. No, they're all- do you have a least favorite time you bombed? They're t- yeah, they're terrible. Like I, even now, like, you know, like you just, you know, sometimes it's just not going to work out. And like, I just can't stand like, you, you just feel the sweat on the back of your neck. You're like, oh no. It's like this is happening. Um, yeah, I got sent home from Australia once. That was a rough one. You bombed so bad that they're like, you can't even be on this hemisphere anymore. Yeah, you you have to leave the country. No, I took this gig and I wasn't ready to do it, you know. And I'm not I'm not great at international travel, and I certainly wasn't good at it in 1992 or three. I got I got booked out of New York before I moved back to San Francisco in the early 90s to headline at a place called The Last Laugh in, in Melbourne, and I took the gig. It was like a five-week gig. It was a week of previews and a mm-hmm. month run, and I was just struggling. I didn't have the time. Like, I, I was a middle, uh, you know, a fairly strong middle. I had about 40 minutes, 45 minutes, 
And, you know, I really needed to do 45, 50 minutes. And it was just right from the get-go. It was a nightmare. I was in another country, and it was like I was pulling teeth. And I was uncomfortable because I didn't feel comfortable being away from home. And, you know, I did this week of previews. It was up and down. It was just brutal. And it was like the shows were different. Like the ho- there was a host. And then there was this burlesque act, you know, that mm. these two women wearing wigs, one had an accordion. And then I swear to God, they had a guy who closed by escaping from a straitjacket on a unicycle. And then and then an intermission, and then me. So I'm just like, you gotta be fucking kidding me. I did everything I could, you know, the week of previews. And then the first night of, you know, the run, you know, I just, you know, I'm up there and I do one or two jokes and someone heckles me and I just froze. And I all I could hear was the ember of my cigarette, you know, burning for like 40 minutes like it was i bombed so hard to to the silence had a a a suction to it and you know i get off stage and the guy was like you know wow you know and he takes me out to breakfast the next day and he says i don't think this is working out i think yeah maybe we'll we'll send you home and i'm like no i mean you know you know eh." And then right at that moment, someone came up to me. It's like, didn't I just see you on the Steve Vizard show? And I was like, yeah. But where are you playing? I'm like, I'm not. You know, and they, and they, yeah, they sent me home. And I remember because I relapsed. I'd been sober, but on that flight from, on that flight, yeah, it was like I was, but it took me a while to get the hang of being sober. But I probably had, I usually used, used to get like a year and a half. But on that flight back, I just was like, I got shit faced. And I was like, I was sent home from a country. It was brutal. Yeah, but in right. retrospect, I, I shouldn't have taken the gig. Yeah. Do you have a short story of an interaction with a legendary comedian, living or dead, uh, that you would like to share that maybe you've not shared before since obviously you've had so many? Well, yeah, I mean, I think that the great one is that Kennison one, you mm. know. You know Kennison. Yes. Well, I spent a lot of time with that guy. And he had a bit, you remember his bit, you know. But I remember like one night, we must have been like high, like during the, him holding court, doing the blow. And I'm like, dude, you know, how, like, how'd you figure it out, man? Like, how'd, like, how'd you find your voice? You know? Because like, that was always my weird concern. How'd you find your voice? And he says, Gene Wilder. And I'm like, what? And now go listen to some Kennison. You know how Wilder used to build like, and I'm like, oh my God. He took the drive shaft of Gene Wilder, a Jew, this this Tulsa fucking preacher, mixed that with preaching and that's that's the build. I was like, wow. That was mind blowing. Yeah. Sure. It was like when I talked to James Kahn and he told me that when the first scene he shot of The Godfather, he still didn't know who Sonny was. Like he was not sure what the character yeah. was, but he was hanging out with Don Rickles at the time. And then he realized, oh, he's going to bust balls. Sonny's Don Rickles. And it was like that kind of thing. Like, wow, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. And then there was another time I was in the. I was in the car with me and Garofalo and Jimmy Miller way back before Jimmy Miller was a huge manager. That's Dennis's brother. There's a few Miller brothers, Rich, Dennis, and Jimmy. They're all in comedy somehow. 
But I was asking Jimmy the same question. It must have been, what year was that? It was in, probably in the early 90s. I was, maybe, yeah, 90, 91. We were going somewhere. Like, Janine was living there in Boston. I was living in Boston. And Jimmy was in town. We're all in my car. We're driving, you know, and I'm asking Jimmy. I'm like, like, your, your brother figured it out. Dennis figured it out. Like, how'd he find his voice? And Jimmy goes, he's doing Belzer. <laughs> I love that shit. Um, this is a oh, the last. Uh, do you have pre-show rituals? I like doing sound checks. I like being in the room. A lot of times, if it has a really great sound system, I'll have them play my music and just sit in the empty theater and just listen to my playlist. <laughs> yeah, on the huge sound system, I like doing that. I like the backstage. You know, I like. I don't know. Uh, but there's no real rituals. I yeah. only have a couple of things on my writer, and I got to add more. Like I have Zevia ginger ale and raw cashews. So if I do a three or four day run, I'm carrying a lot of cashews, dude. So a lot of cashews. Yeah. Um, do you have a, a advice for an up and coming comedian or comedy maker or creative person? I don't know. I I, I mean, it's like always the same advice, is, and I think it gets harder to do. Is that you've got to take the risks hmm. to really fail to find your space. You know, the, the great thing it used to be about comedy is like, you know, you'd have these open mics or these nights, you know, where you could just go fuck off. You know, you weren't being paid. It, it's just like to really utilize that anonymous time as an artist or a performer to figure out what you can get away with up there yeah, and what you want to do up there. You know, it's, because it, there's, it's really up to you. I mean, the, that was the greatest thing about comedy. I don't know why, you, you know, why I, it's just like with comedy, there's only one requirement is that you get people to laugh, I guess. But, you know, outside of that, like, knock yourself out. Yeah. And I saw some weird shit, dude. Weird shit. Back in the day, watching Dave Cross do shit, when he was starting, that was crazy. It was crazy, dude. Like those guys who come from that Kaufman tradition. Yeah. Some of that shit was nuts. What people used to see people lose their minds on stage. It was great. There was nothing yeah. better back in the 80s watching comics snap. You know, one snaps anymore, you know? It was pretty common before <laughs> yeah. cell phones. Just a comic going like, fuck you. Fuck this. <laughs> yeah, like, oh, this is great. Yeah. So let's say in the last three years, did you have a joke that you thought was really funny that you tried a bunch of times, but you can never get it to work. But you at this moment be like, I was right. Those guys are wrong. Maybe you didn't keep in the act, but, you know, it just never worked. But you really believe in it. Yeah, there's always one of those. I feel like there was one that like I was just doing. And it just never went anywhere. Or maybe I fixed it. I just got it to work. Uh, it's that beat when I'm talking about my dad's dementia, mm -hmm. where I say, you know, I, I set up that, you know, he was a difficult man and now he's at the beginning of dementia and, you know, he still has his older memories, but the day of stuff's rough, but he's very pleasant to be around. He's open and kind of fun. And the, the, the line of like, you know, yeah, I know it's a terrible disease, but don't miss the sweet spot. <laughs> It's it's right at the beginning. It I it took me a long time. I just could not get it to work, and I believed in it, and it was really just um, it's still a little hit or miss because you really got it, you know, sort of 
take away the tragic element of dementia yeah. through the character of my father. But like, it works most of the time now. But it yeah. it, it took a while, dude. Yeah, it's, it, it's a hard one. Yeah. That's it. Th- thank you so much, Mark. Yeah, this man. It's been really special. I really appreciate it. I appreciate it, too. That's it for another episode of Good One. Watch From Bleak to Dark on HBO and HBO Max on February 11th. Listen to WTF with Mark Marin every Monday and Thursday. Follow Mark on social media at Mark Marin. Good One is produced by myself, Jelani Carter, and Camila Salazar. Got Mishika Shin did our theme song. Write a review and rate the show on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, please. Email any comments, questions, or laughing around suggestions to goodonepodcast at gmail.com or tweet at us at goodonepodcast. I'm Jesse David Fox, and you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. Good One is a production of Vulture and the Vox Media Podcast Network. We're here every other Tuesday. Have a good one. Welcome to Good One. Show about talking them jokes. Mm, son. Hey, 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 good one. It's a good one. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.